Everyone gets up here and says, I'm not a public speaker, and then they like smoke it. So, <laughs> so good. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, can you uh, look at someone next to you and say, I'm glad that you're here today? It's just, uh, yeah, greet someone in the name of the Lord. If you're worshiping online, yeah, thank you so much for, uh, for being with us as well. Uh, feel free to leave a comment or a prayer or a blessing that you would uh, want to leave for your church. I um, recall a time, this was maybe a few months ago, I was... Um, trying to help my kids to, to understand how, like, it's good to be honest, right? And how if you're not honest, usually, like, mom and dad can, can figure it out. And so I wanted to use uh, one of the experiences from my childhood as a teaching moment for them. And so I told them the story about how uh, when I was in fourth grade, fourth grade was a really difficult time in my life. Academically, it was hard, just a lot of things going on. Uh, there's a book that said that fourth grade is the most important year of a child's life. And so if you're a fourth grade teacher, you got all kinds of, of props uh, and power to you. But uh, fourth grade was really difficult for me. And so I was struggling in school. And on my report card, I, I, I got a D on this one particular, I forget what subject it was, but I got a D, uh, which is really, really bad. And so uh, knowing that I was going to get in big trouble for it, uh, bringing home a D on my report card, uh, I got home before my parents, and I took out a pen, and I changed the D uh, to a B, <laughs> right? And so, uh, it obviously, to, to turn a D into a B that's inside of a square, it was like blowing up outside of that square, but still, it looked okay to me. The B looked good. Maybe they wouldn't be able to tell. Uh, so I gave it to my parents. They here's my report card, and obviously, they could tell, and obviously, they were in... Uh, more angry that I had changed the grade than had I gotten, actually, I'm not sure if they were more angry about the, the grade or the fact that I lied, but um, I remember as I was telling this story to my kids a few months back, uh, I felt like I did a really good job communicating it to them. Uh, they laughed at the appropriate moments. They were fixated upon me. They were like, so what happened next? Did you get away with it? And, and obviously, I didn't. And so I walked away feeling like, all right, they're going to be honest for the rest of their lives. It's going to be great. And I walked away, and then I came back and I, to, to see what they were doing about 15 minutes later, and they had paper and pen, and they were changing D's to B's on that piece of paper. I was like, no, that's not the point. That's not the point. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know if you've ever missed a point that somebody was trying to communicate to you. But as we look into the seven churches in Revelation in Asia Minor, the first church that we're going to look at to whom Jesus wrote a letter was a church that had missed a point. And as we read this letter, and as we read each of the seven letters as we go through the book of Revelation, the question that it leads us to ask is, could this be said of us as well? Could this be said of us at harvest? Could this be said of me as an individual? Have we potentially missed the point? The first church that we come to in the study in the letters of Revelation from Jesus is the church of Ephesus. We're going to read from uh, Revelation chapter 2 in just a second, but I want to show up here on a map. Um, this is where the church of Ephesus was. If you remember from last week, if you were here, um, the churches in Asia Minor are located in what is now modern-day Turkey. So that big thing on the, the, the main thing where um, these, the, the yellow area is Turkey. To the west of that is Greece, and these are uh, some of the islands. You remember John the Apostle was writing from the island of Patmos, which you see on the, kind of in the middle bottom left side. It says Patmos. The first place that a mail carrier would go from Patmos to Asia Minor was the city of Ephesus. And so it might be one of the reasons why it was the first church. From there, it would make its circular route uh, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and then back to Ephesus. That was the mail route that somebody who was bringing a message would carry throughout Asia Minor. And so in that way, message would spread from one city all the way throughout the entire region. Ephesus was the first because it was geographically the first, but it was also first most likely because of its significance and its importance. Okay? Ephesus was a major, major metropolis in that area. Its location on the coast made it a major port city, meaning that all kinds of imports and exports would come in and out of Ephesus. In addition, it wasn't only goods and services that were coming, it was also ideas that would spread. If they were to come to Asia Minor, they would spread through Ephesus. So from all over the different parts of the Mediterranean world, if you had an idea, if you wanted to debate something and you wanted to get it into Asia Minor, you'd go through Ephesus. This was a major hub for so many different reasons. 
It was not only a major port city, but there were major highways that came from the north, the south, and the east, every direction except from the west, obviously because the west is filled with water, but from every direction where there was land, major highways would converge in Ephesus. This was a major city in that day, the most important city in Asia Minor. If we were to make a comparable, uh, an, an analogy to what it is today, Ephesus would be like the Los Angeles of our day today. It would be like the New York City, a major area where all kinds of ideas are exchanged, where the elite would live. This was a huge place, a huge place. It was the center for music and arts and drama and sports. There was a theater, a, an amphitheater that could hold 25,000 people in Ephesus. So if you wanted to watch a good show, Ephesus was the place to be. This was Broadway of Asia Minor. Not only that, it had these major stadiums, this major athletic competition that was rivaled only by the Olympic Games of Greece that were held in uh, Ephesus. It was aptly named the Ephesian Games. And so if you wanted to see a major sporting event, you would come to Ephesus and you would watch these games. It was like the Super Bowl of Asia Minor. This was the place to be. Everyone knew about Ephesus. Everyone who wanted to be someone would go to Ephesus. If you wanted to see the great city, uh, a great city of Asia Minor, this is a place where you would go. But perhaps the reason why Ephesus was more famous than any other reason, not because of its music, its size, its arts, its drama, its sports, even though it had 250,000 people who called Ephesus home, the most important thing and the most defining characteristic of Ephesus was a temple that was erected to a goddess named Artemis. Okay. The, I think the Greek name for Artemis was Diana. Right? Uh, very, very, very significant thing. It was so significant that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There were temples that were erected to different emperors throughout Ephesus, uh, uh, Di Di uh, Diocletian, the um, uh, different emperors they would have, uh, Augustus, uh, they would have uh, different temples built in their honor, but the biggest and the best and the most important and the most significant of all of them was a temple of Artemis. And you will read about this. You can read about this in the book of Ephesians. Um, church history will tell you all about it. But what was important about this was, well, uh, on the outside, it was a very impressive structure. It was laid with gold and jewels, and almost all of the gold and jewelry came from kings of other nations. And so they recognized the beauty and the significance of this temple. It was massive. You could fit probably one and a half football fields within that temple. But the most important thing was not what it looked like on the outside or how big it was, but what happened on the inside. Inside the temple of Artemis would be every kind of immorality and debauchery in the name of religion. Ephesus was the home of an emperor-worshipping cult called the cult of Artemis, where people would go and they would worship this goddess and they would worship the different emperors who were enthroned in Rome. Now, the way that they showed their religious devotion was very strange. The way that they would show their devotion was there would be temple prostitutes all over the temple of Artemis and you would go in and you would fulfill your sensual desires and indulge in that revelry. Drunkenness, immorality, lustfulness, all that being played out in the name of religion. First Corinthians writes about that also in different contexts in the church, in, in the city of Corinth, but it was finding its hub in Ephesus. It was a huge, huge attraction. So people coming from all over the different lands would come, traveling businessmen would come, and they couldn't wait to get their business done in order that they could go to the temple of Artemis and have their every sinful desire fulfilled. This temple of Artemis would make Sin City look like Chuck E. Cheese. It was child's play compared to the debauchery and immorality that took place in Ephesus. The other thing about Ephesus and the Temple of Artemis was because of its 
loyalty to Rome as a city, it was granted free city status. That meant that the temple of Artemis in the middle of Ephesus became a refugee area. It became a place of asylum so that criminals would be able to go into the temple and they would be protected by, against the law there. They would be protected against the authorities. So criminals would come along with all kinds of pleasure-seeking people and they would come and you can imagine the kinds of people that would gather in Ephesus in order to find their indulgences satisfied in the temple of Artemis within that city. This was probably the most base and foul and gross and disgusting city in the ancient world. Heraclitus said the morality, he's a historian, the morality of Ephesus was lower than the morality of animals. That's what you'd encounter if you were to go to Ephesus. And yet in the middle of this city, there was a church that was thriving as a light in the midst of the darkness. It's what we call the Ephesian church. In about 52 AD, the Apostle Paul had some friends named Priscilla and Aquila, and he sent them out to Ephesus, and they started a church with a group of people. In Acts chapter 18, it says a great Bible scholar named Apollos came and he taught the Ephesian church and built them up in their theology and their understanding of God. In Acts chapter 19, Paul comes through and on his third missionary journey, he spends three years with the church in Ephesus. That's more time than he spent with any other church. It was so significant, the, the work of the church there, that as it was beginning to grow and, uh, and business was being taken away from the temple of Artemis, there were riots because the city of Ephesus said, you're keeping uh, people away from the most significant landmark in our city. And so there were riots. That was the impact and the influence of that little church that was growing and lighting up the darkness. After Paul left, he sent his most faithful, most faithful disciple, Timothy, to be the pastor of that church in Ephesus. Once Timothy left, the apostle John went, the one who wrote the book of Revelation. If there ever was a church that was a church to be commended, it was a church in Ephesus. If there ever was a church that had the best leaders from Apollos to Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, John, it was a church in Ephesus. Like this was the place to be shining brightly as a beacon, as a lighthouse, as a harbor in the midst of a broken city. And so fast forward 40 years, what would be the message that Jesus would say to the church in Ephesus? This is what we see. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start uh, with verses 1 through 3, and then I'll explain it, and then we'll carry on. Jesus says through the apostle John, as he wrote this says, to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. What if Jesus was to say this to our church? Would Jesus say this to our church? Would he use these words as descriptions of our church here at Harvest? It says, to the messenger, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these things. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. There was a, there's an ancient coin and it had the emperor of Rome at the time in Ephesus. And it had his face, and it has seven stars around him. This is probably a nod to that saying, you think the emperor holds seven stars, has seven stars around him. He says, I hold these seven stars in my right hand of authority. And he speaks as one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, we established last week the golden lampstands are the churches. And so Jesus is walking through the church. And he says, I who know everything, he says, I know your deeds. To the church here at Harvest, Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know the things that nobody else knows about your church and what you do. I know the things, the hours spent unseen as you go into your prayer closet to pray. I know how much you're praying for the world. 
I see the ways in which you serve children. You love them. The ways in which when you took that kid to the bathroom to change his soiled pants, you, could have, you were so frustrated, but you were so patient with him, and you loved that kid. I know the ways in which you serve your house church. I know the things that no one else knows because you don't tell anybody because you don't want to steal your reward in heaven and have it here on earth. I know all of the things that nobody else knows about what you do. And then he says, I know your deeds, your hard work. There are two words for hard work. There's one, hard work. You're working hard. And then there's another which means painful, hard, excruciating, sweat-inducing kind of labor that makes you so exhausted at the end of the day. That's the language of Jesus here. He says, I know how hard you're working as a church in Ephesus. You are not a lazy church. You're not a church of, of lazy people. You're not a church of people who just sit back on their chairs. You're not the kind of people who come on Sundays to be served, but you come ready to give your life away. You don't just come on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday, you are the church. You don't come to church. You are the church. I know that about you. He says, I see that about you. I know how much you give and how much you give, not only financially, but your time, your energy, your effort, your labor, your tears, your investment of time, those late night phone calls. I know all those things that you give for the church because I work through, I walk through, and I see everything that you do that no one else knows, those conversations that people know, don't know that you have with people because you're not a leader, because you're not a teacher, because you're not a shepherd, you're not, you don't have a position, but I see all that you do for the sake of of the church. For my name's sake, I see that. He says, I know your perseverance. I know it's not difficult to live for me in the midst of this world. The word perseverance means patient endurance, that you have been through so much in your life, but you have not given up. You've been through so many things, You've been through heartbreak, you've been through pain, you've been through stress, you've been through loss, you've been through all of these things, and I know that, and I see that, and you've persevered. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have them uh, and have found them false. Coming from all these different areas to different, um, from different countries into, uh, into Asia Minor, there would be people who would claim to be apostles. I'm an apostle from a different city. I'm an apostle from a different country. I'm an apostle from a different land, and I've come to you. And he said, you've tested them because you know the Word of God. You understand what is true about the faith. You understand what's true about me and about the Word of God, and you understand what's true about the church. You know all of these things, and you've tested these people. It says in verse 6, you hate the Nicolaitans. Uh, you hate the practices of, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These were people who came, and they said, you know what? Because you know Jesus, okay? Because you are loved by God, because you're forgiven by God, you can do whatever you want. You, you could even go, Christian. You can go into the temple of Artemis, and you can indulge in your fantasies there because you're a child of God, and he's going to forgive you. And these false teachers were coming into the church, and maybe there are people like that who come into your life saying, hey, it's okay. It's okay to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's okay to mess around with this person. It's okay to mess around with that substance. It's okay to cheat a little bit. It's okay to lie a little bit. It's okay to compromise a little bit. God will forgive you. It's a little thing. He will turn a blind eye to it. It's okay to get drunk once in a while, as long as it's not your lifestyle. There are people who are saying a bunch of different things to you, aren't they? And they were saying the same thing into the church of Ephesus. And he says, you've tested these people and you found them to be false. In other words, you have high standards of what it means to live for Christ. And you don't lower or compromise those standards for anybody else to make yourself look better. You hold on to what is true about the faith, and you cling to the Word of God and you seek to live it. You've got strong and sound theology and you will not waver in the face of false teachings. This is what he says about them. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. For the sake of Christ, to live for God in the midst of that kind of a pagan culture. You're standing firm, and you're not being shaken, and you're doing this not so that your name would become great, not so that people would praise you, not so that people would praise the church, but that people would praise Jesus. 
because you know that your life is lived for the name and the sake of another. And because of Christ, you're holding out against the world in order to fight for the life of Christ in you. He says you're doing it as a church in Ephesus, in in, in a city awash in reckless living, you're standing for me. Could this be said of us as a church? I know you're working so hard. You're not a lazy church. You're out there sodding. You're out there teaching. You're out there praying. You're out there loving. You're out there cleaning. You're out there cooking. You're out there leading house churches. You're doing children's ministry. All of these things, man, I see those things. Not only that, you've persevered under hardship. You haven't compromised with the world. You know the truth and you're fighting for it and you're teaching other people of it and you you call out sin in your community. You don't sweep it under the rug. You don't say, hey, it's all good, but you call out sin in the lives of people within the church. And even though you've gone through difficulty and hardships this year, these past 10 years, you have not grown weary, but you've continued to give yourself to me. What a beautiful thing for Jesus to say about the church. I would love for Jesus to say this about us. As he hands out the report card to the church in Ephesus, They're not getting D's. They don't need to change these grades to B's. In the area of hard work, A+, perseverance, A+, faithfulness to Scripture, A+, theology, A+, intolerance of sin, A+, all of these things, hardship for my name, A+. And so the valedictorians of the churches of Asia Minor, the church in Ephesus, are rising up to get their diploma as a name Ephesian church is called, and they get their diploma, and as they're walking across the stage, confident in their abilities, they look down, and they see final grade, however, was an F. Wow. What happened? Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. In the original language, verse 4 comes right in the middle of this letter. There are 67 Greek words before it. There are 67 Greek words after it. This is the apex of Jesus' words to the church in Ephesus. Guys, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. You're doing all these things great, but here's the deal. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And you've forsaken that love for Jesus. You've done hard work but you haven't loved me. You've persevered, but you haven't loved me. You, you, you've had sound theology, but you haven't loved me. You've given everything. You've woken up early. You've stayed up late. You've gone to bed tired because of all that you're doing for me, but you didn't love me. In other words, all the amazing things that you're doing in the mission field, all the amazing things you're doing in the church, all the things that you're doing in the community were multiplied by zero because you forsook your first love. Could that be said of you and me? All these things that we're doing, Jesus says, listen, Harvest, yet this I hold against you. You've forsaken your first love. The love that you had for Jesus that once burned so bright and clear. This can happen to any of us and it can happen in any way. Doesn't ha- let's, let's, let's go outside of church for a little bit. Let's talk about sports. Let's talk about your job. Let's talk about what you do. You're a doctor. You're a teacher. You're an athlete. You used to love doing these things. When you started out, right, the reason you went to med school, the reason you went to, to education, the reason why you, you got into golf or tennis or basketball was for the love of the game. The reason you went into accounting was because I love doing this. I love helping other people out. And you went into it with such a passion and such a fervor. And that's what drove you to stay up late at night. That's what drove you to, 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 to engage in all of these difficult things. That's what caused you to persevere and give your hard work. So it caused you to reject false teachings because you wanted to do this right for the love of the game. Somewhere along the way, though, maybe because of your coworkers or your classmates or your bosses or your coaches, 
maybe because of the stress or the difficulty or just somehow it just wasn't working out for you. Slowly, you lost the love. You lost the fire. You lost the devotion. The flames which once burned so brightly have trickled out, fizzled out, flamed out, and now it's just a little spark here and there. It could be true not only of your work, of your hobbies. It could be true of marriage too. When you first saw that person, you were so smitten. And so you knew, man, if there's any way I could get with that girl, if I could get with that guy, if there's any way I could do that, oh, my goodness. And they started giving you attention, and they started talking to you, and they started becoming more than friends, and you realized, man, this is exciting. Your head started to tingle. You had butterflies in your stomach. You started getting sweaty. And you said, I've got to do something before somebody swoops in and takes this person that I've got my sight set on. Your heart is beating the entire time, and you're so excited. You get engaged. You can't wait to get married. You can't wait to go on your honeymoon. And somewhere along the line, you lost that loving feeling. You don't, uh, you never close your eyes when you kiss anymore. Things just aren't the same. Maybe it's busyness, maybe it's work, maybe it's distraction, maybe it's kids, maybe it's stress, whatever it is. But your once soulmate has now merely become your roommate. And at worst, they've now become your cellmate and you feel like you're trapped in a loveless marriage. What do you do? You don't leave it. What do you do? It happens not only in relationships here on earth, but it happens with Jesus too. It happens as individuals and it happens as a church. Have you forsaken your first love? When Jesus first encountered you and that love was so real and you would give anything to that love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, all of my life and nothing less. I offer to you my righteousness. And now, it's no longer how much can I give. It's become how little can I give. Have you lost first love? You see, when it says you have forsaken your first love, literally means you have distanced yourself from first love. That's something that, that doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It's a slow departure, day by day, walking away from the love of God. You remember the way that it used to be, right? There was uh, several years ago, I was preaching at a retreat uh, for college students up in Virginia. Several of us were there. Uh, we, uh, actually, a good number of us went up together. We're at that retreat. And I was talking about, um, I, I forget, but I did this idea that we need to love Jesus, like love for God comes above all things. You can serve without love, you can give without love, you can obey without love, but if you love, you can't help but serve. If you love, you can't help but give. If you love, you can't help but obey. Love is the engine behind it all. And as I was preaching at this retreat, I talked about a song that we used to sing in high school, middle school. Um, it goes, do you love Jesus? Deep down in your heart, and the response would be, yes, I love my Jesus, deep down in my heart. And as I was, I was preaching, I was asking these college students, I say, do you, do you love Jesus deep down in your heart? It's a question that Jesus asks us this morning. Do you love Jesus deep down in your heart? Has it been replaced by a bunch of other things? And as we were finishing up that service, um, our praise pastor, worship pastor at the time, Pastor Albert, who had come down with us also, was leading a time of response, and we were singing this song, college students, young adults, pastors. He was calling out different groups. Do you love Jesus deep down in your heart? Students of UVA, students of George Washington, students at George Mason, students at Virginia Tech, students at William and Mary, uh, young adults, working people, alumni, pastors, do you love Jesus? And as we're singing this song with this youthful exuberance, 
And as people were shouting at the top of their lungs, yes, I love my Jesus. Like I was just sitting in the back and I was, I recorded this on my phone, but I just remember, man, I was just, I was just like crying. I don't cry often, but when I do, <laughs> I don't cry often, um, but I was so moved in my heart, not only by what I was seeing and hearing, but I just felt Jesus saying, hey, listen, you've been, you've been so about the work of God, so doing the work of God. I just felt like, man, that was a question that was dropping like a thousand pounds of brickage and tonnage in my heart, like, bam, like, do you love Jesus in the midst of all this work? Do you love Jesus deep down in your heart? And it's a question that I asked myself this week as I was just thinking over this passage. Do I love Jesus? Like deep down in my heart. Because what he's saying is, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what you do, all the things that you do, how little you, you sleep, how much you give, none of that means anything if you've distanced yourself from the love of Jesus Christ in your heart. That's what he's saying to the church in Ephesus. It's like you've been busy with all this stuff, but it's been multiplied by zero. Could he be saying that to you today? Could he be saying that to me today? Could he be saying that to house churches throughout our church? Could he be saying that to our church? Could he be saying that to you? Have you forsaken your first love? He says, if you have, here's what you do. Verse 5 says, remember the height from which you have fallen. It says, use your mental faculties to think back to that time when the love of Christ first grabbed the hold of your heart. You remember that time? When his love became so real to you. When you couldn't stop crying at that retreat when you were in eighth grade. When you couldn't stop crying when the love of God washed over all of your sin, when you realize that I owe a debt that I cannot pay and he paid a debt that he did not owe in order that you could go forgiven. Do you remember when grace became amazing, that it caused you to, to give up everything? Maybe for some of you, it's you had all these secular music CDs or tapes and, and that day you came back from that retreat when you gave your life to Christ and you burned all of them because you said, I'm not living for that anymore. I'm living for Jesus. I'm going all in for Jesus. I'm going all out for Jesus. Everything I have is given to him. Do you remember those days? Remember those days when you were at that retreat in Georgia, when you were at that retreat in North Carolina, when you were at that retreat wherever it was, that Sunday worship, that house church, that SNF meeting, that vacation Bible school where someone told you about Jesus and you said, man, this is what I need in my life and I'm giving everything I have to pursue this Jesus. Do you remember those days? Because the memory of what was then becomes a longing for what could be because whatever you experienced in the past of God is available to you in so much greater measure now. The same yesterday, today, and forever. That's Jesus. And he wants to meet with you and he wants to encounter you. The power of remembering. That's in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. When this kid says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me money. Give me my share of the inheritance. He takes it and he wastes it all. And when he's sitting in the midst of a pigsty, feeding pigs, he remembers what life was like back home. The height from which he had fallen and that memory of what was became a longing for what could be. And he said, I'm coming back home to the love of my father. Remember the height from which you have fallen. That's what Jesus is saying to those who have distanced ourselves from that first love. How does this happen? It happens in a lot of different ways, but I read this study this week. It said 47% of people, maybe uh, one out of every two of us here, the way that we remember better days was by listening to songs that remind us of another time. Maybe you listen to a love song and you think of the boy that you were dating, the girl that you were dating at that time. Or you think of a love song. There's a song that Olive and I have whenever we hear Stand By Me. That's our song. That's what we, our first dance at our wedding. Stand by me. It reminds us of another time. Maybe there are songs in your heart that remind you. Maybe that retreat when you first gave your life to Christ, there was a song that you used to sing. 
For me, I, it's, it's these old songs, the nails in your hands, the nails in your feet, they tell me how much you love me. Why have you chosen me out of millions, your child to be? You know all the wrongs that I have done. It's draw me close to you, never let me go. I lay it all down again to hear you say that I'm your friend. You're all I want, you're all I've ever needed. Knowing you, Jesus, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness. What are those songs for you that remind you of your first love? May I never lose the wonder, oh, the wonder of your mercy. There's a playlist on my computer called Dry Eye Days. It comes from a song that says, my eyes are dry my faith is old, my heart is hard, and my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, O Spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your love. And in that playlist, there are songs when I feel like my heart has walked away from first love. Songs that I play and listen to that remind me of when the love of God was so real in my life. Remember when Jesus was so near to you, when his voice was so clear. When you, do you remember when you used to love reading the Word of God? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you loved coming to worship service? You longed to hear the Word of God. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you loved sitting down to pray? When you love that, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, we're going to be here for like forever now. Or, oh my gosh, I can't wait for this to be over. But when you loved being in the presence of God, when you loved grabbing your guitar and just jamming out and singing the songs of redemption and hope and joy, do you remember those days? Because the memory of what used to be becomes a desire, a hunger, a thirst for what God wants to do in your life now. It says, once you remember, it says, repent and do the things you did at first. To repent means I agree with you, God, about what you say about the condition of my heart, that I've fallen away, I've walked away, I've given myself to other things. I don't love the way that you, I, I, I used to. And you repent and you agree with God and you turn away from this world and you turn back to Jesus. Repent, he says, and then do the things that you used to do. Where do you find that which was lost? You find it in the place where you left it. Where do you find a love that was lost? You often find it in the place where you left it. What were you doing in those days when the love of Christ was so real? Maybe it was at the time when love for Christ was the highest. You were getting alone to be with God and worshiping him before school. And now that you're working, you've lost sight of that. And he's saying, come back to that place. Maybe it's when you used to journal out your prayers. Maybe it was when you used to go to prayer meeting. Maybe you used to go to uh, SNF when you were in high school. And your love for God was at its peak. And now that you've gone to college, you don't engage in fellowship. You don't go to house church anymore. He's saying, go back and do what you used to do at first. Why do, why do new believers, why do new believers want to do everything that the church offers? Why do they want to read the word? Why do they want to pray, go to prayer meeting, house church, serve in different ways, tell people about Jesus? Why do they want to do that? Because they know if they, well, because if you love, then all these things will come from that place. But if you don't have love, then all those things will feel like things that you have to do, not things that you get to do for Jesus. Oftentimes, it's in doing the action that the love begins to get restored. The feelings of love begin to get restored because love is not about a feeling. It's about the choices and the decisions that you make in light of one that you have seen and love that you've experienced and encountered. It says, go back and do the things you did at first. And then he gives these sobering words, which we need to hear, which were lived out by the church of Ephesus. It says, if you do not repent. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. We see that whatever ways in which the Ephesian church took this word, it didn't last for very long. Because ultimately, 
the lampstand was removed from the church in Ephesus. And within decades, I don't know, years even, the church that was once thriving and booming in Ephesus was no longer to be, and the light had been snuffed out. You want a modern-day example? Well, we could go throughout history. After the, the light was blown out in the Middle East there, it went to Europe. You remember at the end of the book of Acts, Paul says, I'm going to Spain to bring the gospel to people who don't know. It went to Europe, and for many, many, many centuries, Europe became the dominant center, the hub of spirituality, the great awakenings in Geneva and all of the, the, the places that uh, in, in Scotland and Germany and Switzerland, the, the move of God, so powerful, so powerful. But now England, I'm sorry, Europe is struggling as it comes to the faith in Christ. Many of the great big churches have been turned into mosques for the sake of the faith of the Islamic people. 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, the lampstand came here to America, the great awakenings. The church began to thrive and to grow here in America. But as we stand in 2021, I believe that the lampstand has moved to a different place. It's not, America is not the center of spirituality of the Christian faith anymore. The center of gravity has moved downward and, 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 and westward back to Asia, to, to, to Africa, to Central America, to South America. Church is thriving in places. Listen, guys, it doesn't matter if you had Paul as your pastor. It doesn't matter if you had Timothy as your pastor, John as your pastor. It doesn't matter that you had Pastor Inky as your pastor. It doesn't matter that Pastor Josiah is your pastor, that DL or anybody else. It doesn't matter. We are always one generation away from extinction as a church. That's the reality. Okay, that's the reality that he's saying, let's wake up to this reality. Maybe a church will still be here. Maybe this edifice will be here 20 years later. But here's what happens when a church is removed from its lampstand. The church is still there. The preacher still preaches. The praise leaders still get up there. People are still running programs, doing house church, still doing sod, still playing soccer out there, still doing the different ministries. But there's no power in it. There's no influence in it. There's no transforming grace of God, no sense of the intimate presence of God in there. That happens when a people begin to lose sight and distance ourselves from first love. It doesn't happen because we stop doing things. It happens when we lose the heart of it all, when we stop praying and stop loving and stop seeking God. There's a sober warning that is issued, and the church in Ephesus didn't heed it, not the way that they ought to have. And the church, you go there now in Turkey, and it's ruins. It's all it is. All seven of these churches in Asia Minor, which once were flagship churches in their area. There's no guarantee, guys, no guarantee that our church will be here 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. There's no guarantee. He says, hear these words. And then this is what he says, verse 7. He who has ears to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, he's saying, listen. Listen to what I'm saying. Heed the warnings. Hear the cries. Because he gives this promise. To the one who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Saying, if you overcome, if you repent, if you remain in the first love of God, you overcome, I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What does that mean? It's a question that people have been asking. How do I eat from the tree of life? How do I get to paradise? Been asking that from Genesis. It's where we get this language of paradise, the Garden of Eden where God's greatest desire is to walk with his people in a love relationship with them, Adam and Eve walking with them for all time. He said, I've got a couple trees here. Obey me about this tree and you'll live forever. Obey me about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you'll eat from the tree of life and you'll live forever. But as soon as they turned away from their love and abandoned first love, access to the tree of life was forever barred. A flaming sword protected the tree of life so that nobody could eat of the tree of life and live forever. Why? This was God's protection. 
Because if we sinful people were to eat from the tree of life, we would live forever in our sinful, broken state. And God did not want, uh, could not allow us to live in our brokenness forever and ever and perpetuate the heartbreak and the hate and the crime and the difficulty and the pain that we would lead to other people and to ourselves. So he set up protection so that none could live forever in this state of brokenness. Then in the book of Revelation, it says, but I... I will tell you how you can eat from the tree of life. It's like you see this in Genesis, you see it in Revelation, and all throughout there's these, these hints, there are these clues, there are these symbols, there are these signs that are being dropped throughout, and, and you get to the end of the movie, and it's like yeah, at the end of the movie you see everything that had been leading up to this, it all makes sense now. All of the signs and all of the hints and all of the clues and all of the sacrifices and all of the temple and all of that stuff was pointing us to this reality that it's not about you and it's not about me and it's not even about the church. All of this is actually about Jesus. How do we have access then to the tree of life? How can we live forever? How can we overcome? How can we come back to first love? John was there, and he will tell you that the day Jesus, the night, last night of Jesus' life, he was with him in a different garden. It wasn't paradise. It was quite the opposite. Not a paradise, but in a garden of sorrows, Gethsemane, an oil press. That's what Gethsemane means, where you would squeeze and press out every part of the olive branch tree until oil came out of it. It's where Jesus was pressed and crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point where sweat became blood. And God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden in paradise, obey me about this tree and you will live forever. He failed. He pointed Jesus in another garden to another tree. And he said, tomorrow I'll give you a choice. If you obey me about a tree, you will die. But all who believe in what you've done and put their trust in you will live forever. The tree of life, Calvary's cross. You and I could never get to that place because we made the same choices as Adam did and Eve did and we chose to sin and break the law of God. But there was one who perfectly obeyed to the very end. He went through the flaming sword and he took the punishment and the wrath of God in order that entrance to the tree of life could be given to us so that we could eat of it and we could live forever, so that we could overcome, so that we could live forever. How do you find, where do you find first love? You go back to that place, the cross. This is love. Same author John, 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How do you get back to first love? <laughs> you get back to the cross. You see there, that's where love first entered into our lives. When that love begins to touch and penetrate into our lives, our hearts begin to love, filled with his love, filled with a, a deepening well of love. We can then love God in return, and through that, our light into the world begins to shine as we love the world around us. Let's not miss the point. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Love begins with him. Let's not miss the point. Let's not be busy doing all this for Christ and abandon first love. Today, the invitation to you, to me, to us as a church is let's come back to our first love. Let's pray. Let's take a moment if your conviction in your heart is just to be moved to repentance. Say, God, I'm sorry for being busy without having love. Sorry for doing so much without having the heart, the engine behind it. We're not going to go very far that way. Let's say, God, I need you. Meet me in this place. For others of us, maybe you just want to remember the cross and go back to the cross and just sit there and let his love flow over you, that he did that for you. If you were the only one on earth, 
God would have still sent his son to die for you. He loves you as if you are the only one in this world to love. He loves you with that kind of a love, overflowing, never-ending, relentless love of God. Let's rest in that love this morning. Can we do that? Let's pray for a minute. Maybe for some of you it's to repent. Maybe for some of you it's to remember. For some of you it's, God, I want to come back. Maybe for some of you it's, Lord, I just want to sit and soak in your love. Spend a minute doing that, though, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll worship the Lord with a closing song. Let's pray for a minute, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't expect us to just love you the way that some unloving parent would say to their child, why can't you just love me? Or the way that some master would demand of their servant, why, don't, why can't you just love me? Love doesn't begin with the giver of that love. doesn't begin with us having to give love to you. You began that by loving us first. It's the only way. It changes everything. Unlike every other religion, we don't have to work up to gain your favor. We don't have to prove that we're lovable. You began by loving us, and our religion is a response to a revelation of love that you've already demonstrated to us. We love because you've loved us first. May we never stray from the truth of Calvary. Lord, may we give all that we are to you. Help us in love. We thank you for loving us. We want to love you better as a result of your word, your teaching, and these truths in our lives. Help us in Jesus' name we pray.